This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Let's bring in John Thompson, Security Consultant, Strategic Intelligence Group. And John is with us now. Hello, John. How are you today? Not too bad. Yourself? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, I know we were going to talk about the uh, shooting in Orlando. I I can't let you go, though, without talking about London and your thoughts on that. And and the fact that uh, the UK has had three of these such attacks in as many months uh, is this is this one any different? Prime Minister Theresa May said uh, there is too much tolerance of extremism in the country. Does that resonate? Well, it should. Um, although the usual voices are, are coming out with the usual uh, uh, remarks today, but the long and the short of it is is that. Uh, um, in the in the last twenty years that we've been engaged with uh, Islamic fundamentalism, is that they've changed their tactics and they've come up with one that we find almost impossible to uh, to anticipate. I mean, it, it's hard to stop someone from just taking a vehicle and a knife and going out and attacking. Um, and as a result, the the public is getting more alarmed and more angry. And uh, I think the, the calls that some action be taken are, are going to grow enough that uh, even the most uh, sort of uh, multiculturally uh, oriented politicians are going to have to realize they've got to do something. Uh, we we all believe in, in, in that one should be able to, to live their rights and, and believe as they wish and, and have the freedoms that they so desire. But when that when that privilege enables them to 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 uh, to want to kill everybody else who doesn't believe in them, where do we draw the line? Well, well, that's the point: is that tolerance isn't supposed to be um, like a constitution. It's not supposed to be a suicide pact, uh, and there's no requirement for us to tolerate those who refuse to tolerate themselves, uh, especially if they do uh, if their intolerance is expressed so murderously. Um, the other point, of course, is that democracies have always had a problem with ideologically driven enemies. And normally, uh, we manage to ignore them uh, and just sort of accept them as a, the routine price of uh, doing business. But every once in a while, they, uh, they become bothersome enough that we've actually got to do something that is undemocratic. And I think Theresa May is sort of uh, testing the waters uh, right now to to see if she can actually get a consensus towards doing something like that. It's one thing to say uh, a line like that, too much tolerance of extremism in the country, uh, but how do you change that and put that into policy? Um, It's been done before, um, without serious harm. Um, In the the American Civil War, again, um, you know, Lincoln had to lock up uh, many of the the copperheads, as they were called, that were... uh, uh, actively opposed to uh, the Civil War. In, in 1939, we locked up members of the German Bund uh, and the Comintern. If you remember, in 1939, the Soviet Union had allied itself with Nazi Germany, uh, and we locked up a lot of uh, their, the activists for their respective parties here. And then in 1940, we uh, locked up uh, Italian fascist organizers. Um, again, with no great lasting harm, but I think the point is that the police and our intelligence services, uh, especially in the U.K., but it's a a problem everywhere else, are overwhelmed. Uh, And they're saying, look, we're we're trying to watch 
uh, thousands of, uh, of potential suspects all the time now, and you know, they have an idea of who they are. Uh, we also know, of course, because it's an ideology, they're the people who push the ideology. And, again, that they've been ignored. And I think the British are thinking of uh, um, perhaps locking everybody up and putting them behind uh, wire for a while until things calm down. How do you differentiate between the sympathizer and someone who actually commits an attack like this? Or are they the same? They are the same in that there's a shared ideology. The point is the criminality of their actions. Uh, but you can't anticipate someone who's going to commit a crime. They have to actually commit one. And the sympathizer, again, is someone who may not actually be committing a violent criminal offense, although if your legal code, like it does in Canada, says it's illegal to uh, uh, raise money for a terrorist group, um, provide shelter or material support, uh, or publicly endorse a terrorist group, you're in violation of uh, the criminal code and, and, and can be arrested for it. I, th- I think the British have similar laws. The, the point is, how much are you normally going to tolerate before you actually act and use those laws to uh, take the ideologues and, and get them. And, of course, you know, in the British point, of course, you've actually had uh, uh, the man who's the head of Scotland Yard during the 7-7 bombings 10 years ago, who himself is a British Muslim, and said, look, we, we've got to lock up 3,000 people. Uh, and that was his uh, response to the aftermath of Manchester. So I imagine he's saying the same thing today. Wow. Um is this will this change the complexion is it different that she has said that line we've got to stop tolerating this is is this just another uh, sound bite or does this one stick well uh, i guess the, the analogy i should have used is she, i think she's floating a trial balloon right now to see if there's a consensus for this behavior like this is high-handed it's it's dangerous it's something you uh, you can't do permanently and we're uncomfortable with it. But the problem is you, you've got to interrupt the transmission of the ideology. And you also have to demonstrate that you are prepared to go to particular lengths uh, if the ideologues aren't quiet. Um, so there is a point you, you will, we will tolerate so much usually. But um, in this case, we're not talking about all Muslims by any means. In fact, we're talking about very few. And I think after 20 years since Al-Qaeda more or less came to our uh, attention, you know, if if you don't know who you're dealing with, uh, then it, it's time you learn. Because the, the point is, we're not talking about all Muslims by any means, but we've had the, the Arab governments of, uh, you know, Egypt and some of the, the Gulf states telling us, watch out for the Muslim Brotherhood. We've got uh, all sorts of other people telling us, you know, Muslims saying, watch out for the Salafists, watch out for uh, the Diobandis and, and Tabligi Jamaat. Watch out. Even the most Sunni Muslims will tell you that it's the people from the Hanbali interpretation um, that result, you know, that's where the, the Salafists and the, the Wahhabis come from, that they're the dangerous ones. Hmm. And we, because we can't, Normally, uh, in our society, really filter them out that easily because we don't understand the nuances that much. It, it's uh, again to say, take that parallel in 1939. We didn't lock up all German Canadians, 
mm. or uh, all Italian Canadians. We went after the ideologues, the ones who were members of particular groups. And I think that's what the British are going to have to do. So back then we stopped the Nazis. How different is this? It's pretty much the same thing, that you you know you've got the, the preachers who preach an extreme version of Islam, uh, and, and most that most Muslims find uncomfortable and have been trying to tell us about, and you take them off the street, and you, you, you sort of break the spell. You get them out of the limelight for several months. You get their supporters and lock them up. Um, you can't do it indefinitely, um, and in some respects, this is, it's not, unconstitutional, but it is extra-constitutional. Um, but you filter them and then let them back out. But they've all been given a warning that you're aware of them, that you know who they are, and they better behave in a more circumspect manner in the future. Uh, is this changing the, complex, the complexion of the upcoming election there, do you think? Well, uh, this is the point, is that we've seen this in, in Europe, uh, the, the vote for Wilder in, in the Netherlands keeps growing. The vote for Le Pen keeps growing. You look at the supporters of uh, Trump, none of whom who might like Le Pen or Wilder or Trump, but more and more of the general public, again, are, are seeing what's obvious and seeing what has to be done and are getting angry and resentful about the failure to act. So this is the point in Britain is that if there again is another failure to act, there will be voters going off in radical directions. Hmm. The the public and that plays right in, and that plays right into the hands of what the terrorists want. That's the danger. The, in some respects, um, it's it's one of the points about terrorism that uh, uh, the terrorist often offers what's called a uh, my old boss called a, a heads I win tails you lose proposition, mm-hmm. and, and that's the point is that you behave extra-constitutionally, but you better do it very, very carefully with strict limits on your behavior. Because the terrorist is trying to make the point. I mean, it's, the object of terrorism is to actually goad a government into behavior like this. Now, if, if you look at, say, some Latin American case, you know, where the, the police start organizing death squads to go after the terrorist supporters, in a while, you can't tell the difference between the authorities and the insurgents. Mm. There is no difference. Uh, and, and that's why you have to take these measures, if, if you take them, very deliberately, very carefully, and with very clearly delineated limits. Do we have the laws needed now on the books to do all of this, or do more laws need to be added? Um, We've had laws and regulations for this in Canada in the past. Most, con- most democratic countries do. The- there are the circumstances that will allow the, uh, the cabinet, um, with due deliberation, to engage in behaviors like this. But again, it has to be a deliberate and very sober political decision. And, you know, you're answerable for it. Uh, let's change gears for the couple of minutes we have left. Talk about uh, the situation uh, in London, uh, sorry, not London, Orlando, uh, that happened earlier this morning. Of course, when you hear of anything like this, uh, one immediately starts, uh, you know, assuming it could be a terrorist attack. It turns out that uh, five people shot dead by a shooter and then he takes his own life, a workplace shooting in Orlando. Uh, is it just automatic for us to assume this is terrorism now, as opposed to just another American gun crime? 
Well, it, it's a useful thing when, when the police are, say, called in um, w- to a situation like this. I mean, it's one of the first things they have to ask themselves. Are we dealing with somebody, well, it's a question of motive. Are, are we dealing with someone who's a criminal? Uh, is this a psychotic or is this political? In other words, is there a terrorist behind this with an agenda? If it's somebody doing it because the, the you know the laser beam is bounced off his tinfoil hat or, or whatever, that's actually <laughs> an insulting thing to say. But <laughs> or is it someone who's doing this for a, crim, uh, a deliberate criminal reasons to make a profit out of it? But again, you can be guided very quickly by their behaviors and, and uh, get a sense of what the motive was and. Pretty quickly, the police in the uh, in Orlando said that this was a disgruntled former employee who was showing everybody that they they thought wrong of him by killing them. Hmm. Uh, why? Uh, obviously, there's more Americans killed with this sort of gun crime than there is for terrorism. Why do we? Are they don't? Why don't they get as incensed when this happens as if it was a uh, a terrorist situation? Well, uh, there's several reasons for it. Um, One, of course, is, again, perspective. Remember, the United States is a country of 330 million people, and we hear about all of these incidents. Mm -hmm. They're given, actually, much more play, um, and and people get have more fear about them than they, they should, because, actually, most of the United States is statistically quite safe. Mm hmm in fact, if you, if you look at the violent, irresponsible gunplay, it's no coincidence. It actually occurs mostly in cities with strict gun control laws. Hmm. It, and I've been in the heart of American gun culture where people uh, had uh, the freedom to carry stuff around, and most of them don't. Uh, and, and things are actually quite quiet, uh, about on par with the Canadian average. Now that, uh, in lieu of what has happened in London over the weekend, uh, we've talked many times, uh, this is less about big orchestrated attacks, suicide bombers, that sort of thing. It's going to be primitive uh, terrorism in in soft targets like this. Uh, When it gets to this point where it's not about blowing people up, it's about doing things like this, does this change the discussion? And I know I've asked you this several times because every time we have one of these incidents, we think this is going to be a tipping point. Well, it it changes the reaction. You know, if you sort of think back uh, to 9-11, you know, the first few years we were worried. We were worried about big, complicated, well-orchestrated, very, very lethal plots. And then 9-11 was an extraordinary attack. I mean, it it killed almost 3,000 people. But our intelligence services very rapidly shifted so that you couldn't actually commit attacks like that without giving off plenty of of warning signs, and we now need to look for them. So the next shift, you know, was typified by the 7-7 7-7 attack or the, the Toronto 18 plot and so on, hmm. where you actually used a, a big orchestrated organization that was already inside the Western world to launch a major attack. But again, our, our police very quickly adapted uh, and watch out for the, the precursor activity. So we're, we're very good at catching anything that's big and complicated. And that explains a shift to small improvised attacks by very small groups with a, a very low technology. Why haven't and, we heard more about the attackers in this story so far? Well, right now in, in Manchester, let alone in London, um, the, the, British are, are the British police are still investigating. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and it's actually the, the way they conduct an investigation is quite interesting because the, the, the British will basically haul in hundreds of detectives and just keep, uh, you know, the reporting agency that's responsible for the investigation takes all these assets and every time a thread is pulled, you know, okay, go work this, see what you can learn. Um, but right now they're still following the suspects. They're still trying to learn more about their connections and they don't want to tip people off yet. And so the British will keep their cards close to the chest for now. Or the United States, you, you tend to have the, the press demanding details on the day after the attack. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, the result is a little different. I personally think that the British approach tends to be much better because it does yield them better results much more quickly. Uh, Donald Trump has brought up his uh, travel ban in lieu of all of this. Your thoughts on that? Uh, the the travel ban that he initially proposed, in, in some respect, he was. If you look at the countries he was listing, they were six failed states, uh, and Iran. And uh, I mean, I'm I'm currently working on a book right now on Iran's uh, deeds. And frankly, I think a travel ban from Iran makes a great deal of sense when you look at the way their so-called diplomats have been behaving for years. Uh, the other cases, they're failed states, so that if, if you make an inquiry, if you're trying to find out, say, the background of someone who's just arrived, um, there is no responsible authority who can give you an accurate answer. Right. So this is the United States sort of saying, okay, we're putting in a blanket filter. Nobody, until we can uh, adjust, sort things out, and develop mechanisms that we can get accurate, reliable information in the future. Right. Um, it wasn't a bad proposal, but coming from Donald Trump, a lot of people weren't going to take it at all. So. Uh, do you think this situation in London is domestic terrorism? The uh, If there were international connections um, that were anything more than somebody wandering off three or four years earlier, uh, it would have been noticed. You know, if uh, ISIS had been consulted about the plan, you know, British police would have noticed it. So, uh, you know, international terrorism, that yes, the, the ideology is international. Uh, some of the uh, emotional affiliations are international, but actually honest international with money, support, logistics from abroad, no, it's all purely domestic. John Thompson has been with us, Security Consultant, Strategic Intelligence Group. John, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Phil Gursky. He's the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting and is with us now. Hello, Phil. How are you today? Good, thanks. How are you today, Scott? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate it. Phil, are we just lucky to this point, those in Canada? We're we're lucky and good. And I think, you know, as Mayor Jim Watson said, he's my mayor here in Ottawa, uh, we've got some really good law enforcement and security intelligence agencies. I think Canadians could recognize that. They're world-class. They're very professional, and, and they've ordered many more plots than they've got through. So, so first of all, we're good, and that's why we're, we've been relatively safe. Um, are we lucky? There's always an element of luck in this, because you can't monitor everybody. You can't run down all of your leads, and it's certainly possible that one or two get through, as we saw what happened here in Ottawa in October 2014 on Parliament Hill. So yes, the odd guy will get through, but our security forces will get most of them, absolutely. Uh, but so uh, certainly you're not suggesting that the other security forces where this has happened are less adequate than ours? 
Oh God, no, not at all. I, I think, and I've said this publicly many, on many occasions, uh, MI5, which is the British equivalent of CSIS, is, is probably the best in the world as far as I've, I'm concerned. I've worked with them an awful lot when I worked with CSIS. I think the world of them. But you have to put it into perspective, the challenge they have. So they've identified in the UK, and these numbers are real, these are public figures, anywhere between three and 23,000 people who subscribe to the violent ideology, like the free people that attacked London Bridge on Saturday, up to 23,000 people. Doesn't mean they have 23,000 plots, 23,000 terrorists, but that gives you a sense of the scale of the problem. So you got to figure out who amongst those 23,000 are the real deal. Which ones do I need to investigate? Which ones do I need to neutralize? That's a phenomenal figure. And as good as MI5 is, and as good as the Metropolitan Police are, and their partners in the United Kingdom, they can only do so much. Uh, with these soft car- uh, targets and you know low-tech terrorism. Um how can this not over-exhaust uh, all resources? Because basically anyone sitting at an intersection could be an alleged attacker. You're right. That's that's the reality, Scott, and that's what people have to recognize. But I would also caution at the same time that while a terrorist attack is possible anywhere, like I'm sitting in a cafe here in Ottawa, downtown Ottawa, talking to you, and I could get on a bus today and something happened. But just because it's possible doesn't mean it's probable. Even in the United Kingdom, we've had three attacks in the past, what, eight weeks or so? So people are getting, you know, very afraid of this because terrorism is, 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 is carried out to instill fear. Bear in mind two things. That, first of all, MI5 and its partners have foiled dozens of flaws in the United Kingdom in the past couple of years. And even though three have taken place in a very short period of time, doesn't mean that, that, that terrorism is a daily event in the United Kingdom. So, yes, we've had a few, and it's, and it's, and it's terrible. The loss of life and injuries are terrible. But terrorism still remains, even in the United Kingdom, a very, very infrequent event. Uh, the fact that these are so uh, low tech, that these are primitive, soft targets—it's it, it, how how much more complicated does this make this? It, it's complicated in the sense that you know we have protocols in place now. We're even here in Canada, whereby if you're going to try and make a bomb, so there's certain things you need to make a bomb, certain precursor elements or, or, or components we call them, and we you know people in the industry, chemical industries. I've been briefed. You know, someone comes in and orders, you know, X number of tons of this material, you need to call us. This is not normal kind of thing. So we have the, I think, the, the measures in place to detect that kind of thing. The problem is, is, if what happened, you know, on London Bridge on Saturday, it was a van and a knife. Yeah. So now, what, what we're going to warn all car dealerships to start calling if somebody suspicious buys a car? Are we going to warn every Canadian tire and home people if someone buys a butcher knife? Clearly, we can't do that, right? So... He does put a tremendous amount of pressure. So at the end of the day, the only way to stop those attacks is prior intelligence. If you don't have prior intelligence, you're not going to stop it the day out. It doesn't work that way. Uh, has the tide changed here, not only in how we're investigating this, but also on on how these crimes are being committed? Uh, as you mentioned, you know, this isn't about... We, we've certainly, you know, it started with 9-11 and bringing airliners down and suicide belts and this, that and the other. Now nobody has to learn how to make a bomb. And, and I guess my question to you, Phil, is like, if you're a potential terrorist, why even waste your time trying to figure it all out? Why waste your time getting caught, you know, uh, trying to find such information on Internet and such? Why not just jump into a van and run and runs a pile of people over? It's a good point, good point, Scott, but we've got to be careful with trends because we certainly did see a suicide bombing in Manchester. So someone did take the time to learn how to build a bomb. Then we had, you know, so we had the attack on Westminster Bridge. That was a guy in a van, and then he had a knife afterwards, and he was killed. Then we have the suicide bombing in Manchester. Now we're back to knife, knives and vans, although interestingly, 
the guys on, on London Bridge did have fake suicide vests on. So they, at least they knew that if they, if they looked like they were suicide bombers, it would have an impact on the response of security forces. So I'm really, I'm a little bit reluctant to talk about trends. I think that it comes down to an individual terrorist. If, if, if he's a, basically a moron who couldn't build a bomb to save his life, of course he's going to use the easy route and use vehicles or knives. If he's got contacts with terrorist groups or he has some training abroad, or he has somebody in his group that knows how to do this, he'll go that route. So it, it reduces to what an individual individual could do. Now, from the security intelligence perspective, you don't have the luxury of relying on trends. You have to consider every possibility simultaneously. So to bring it back to Canada, right, we've had we've had bomb plots like the Toronto 18. We had the knife attack, uh, you know, uh, we've had knife attacks in Toronto. We've had vehicle attacks in Quebec. We had a shotgun in Ottawa on War Memorial on Parliament Hill. So... If you're seated the RCMP, you're thinking, what you know? What is the possibility given the people that I'm looking at? You can't say, well, it's only going to be bombs. It's only going to be bombs next time, or only trucks, because individual people make individual decisions on how they're going to do it. I guess the point that I'm making is that if you're a terrorist that's hell bent on destruction, there's certainly more of a chance of being caught if you're using, uh, you know, internet means of communication and 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 getting sponsorship sponsorship from organizations or such, or trying to figure out how you know to build a bomb or or any of that sort of stuff. I, I mean, at the end of the day. When you do that and you and you engage in that behavior, you have, you stand a good chance of getting caught. This sort of thing, I, you don't. You just I think you, yeah, you, I, you sorry, snap, I, you snap, you jump into a vehicle, and off you go. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And you know, if, if I were a terrorist, I swear to God, I'm not. Uh, I'd probably go for the easiest possible motors operandi. Right? The yeah. That's not going to get me caught. Now um, we, we're certainly not in the minds of those who do this, but that's how you know you'd think they would be thinking. I think so, but you know, you look at you know, you look at air, airliner attacks, right? You would have thought post nine eleven, we've all seen the security at airports. It's a pain in the ass to get on a plane these days because of the security. You think they're terrorists and say, "Oh my God, forget aircraft," because it's not possible. Now we have the infamous laptop ban. There's intelligence that suggests, I'm assuming, I haven't access to it because I'm retired, but I'm assuming there's intelligence that says they figured out a way to defeat you know explosive detection on aircraft. So even though we're we're 15 years out of nine eleven. And, and, and flying an aircraft is much more safe than it was 15 years ago. They're still going back to aircraft, some guys. So there seems to be a, a perverted logic there, in a sense. And maybe, you know, aircraft is kind of the number one target because it's, you know, it's spectacular. You can kill hundreds simultaneously kind of thing. So I think you're right. Most guys will go for the easiest. But there still seems to be those that say, I want to take out the most people possible with, the, you know, with the, with the technology I have. So I will build a bomb, as we saw in Manchester. So it's, as I said, it's all of the above. And that's the challenge facing pieces in the RCMP. So how is this year different for Canadian law enforcement with 150 celebrations going on across the land? I would argue it's both different and the same. So just because it's Canada 150, I don't think there probably would be any necessarily change in the way that pieces in the RCMP do the job. Obviously, um, this is a big event. There are going to be celebrations across the country. I'm speaking to you about three blocks south of Parliament Hill, uh, where there's a gazillion people. I've been there on July 1st. It's amazing. It's a great day. But there's a gazillion people every July 1st. Yeah. Maybe a gazillion and two this year, okay, because <laughs> it's 150th. But, I mean, security forces, law enforcement, they've been doing this for decades. They know what's, what, what's at stake. You know, I, I think you play the clip from Jim Watson, Mayor Jim Watson. They're going to do everything they can to make it safe. So they're, they're used to this kind of thing. Obviously, I, I think if we, if we were to get hit, it would be a little more kind of oomph because it's the 150th. But I guess that I've attended so many July 1st here since I've been here in Ottawa over three decades. And 
there's always a big event in Ottawa, and and yeah, this year might be a slightly bigger, but they've got a lot of practice in, in trying to protect that. Uh, would this perhaps be safer as a result of that because it is a, a big event, which is. Uh, obviously under the, the scrutiny of security, uh, therefore less of a chance in the sense that eh, they, they'll do it a week or two before rather than during. Possibly. The one thing that I think is in the favor of, of those who provide security is that Ottawa basically closes the streets for several blocks around because there's so many people and some people are milling about, like Wellington Street, which is right in front of Parliament, completely you can't drive through. Okay, There's no way you can get a car down there. And, and basically because even if you could get a car down there, there's so many people walking, you wouldn't get anywhere. Hmm. So I, I think that, that that speaks, I think, to in favor of security. But, you know, Scott, the problem is, is that if you were to lock down so many streets um, regularly, put concrete barriers as they have in London on the bridges I read this morning, what terrorists, they just go one block over, yeah. two blocks over, and what, you're going to block every street. I mean, you're in Hamilton, right? So, you know, you, you block Main Street. Well, what about one block south of Main Street yeah. or on King Street or whatever kind of thing? You can't lock down everything. You can't provide ultimate security. There's no, no, there's no ironclad guarantees. People have to get used to that. Uh, again, with events like this, similar to the Manchester uh, concert, uh, obviously security is layered within the, the you know, the, uh, the the stadium itself or the arena itself uh, is safe. But as you mentioned, in the blocks that surround it, in the corridors that surround it, even if you have layered security, sooner or later the layer is lighter, right? Look, if you have someone absolutely determined to cause carnage and mayhem, he's going to do it or she's going to do it. You can't, you just can't provide, you know, blanket security that's going to spoil every single plot. That, that's, that's a given, okay? Yes, most people do want to, you know, they want to hit large events. They want to cause them, you know, the point of terrorism is to cause the most damage and injury possible with the least amount of force. That's what you, you want to cause here. You want to cause terror. So we have, again, we have to accept that these things are a possibility, but I would, I would really stress to your listeners, that just because terrorism is possible doesn't mean it's probable. And, you know, look at this country. We haven't had, we've had, we had major plots in this, in this country since 9-11, and I worked on a lot of my pieces, but those were all thwarted, thanks to thesis and the RCMP. We've had smaller attacks that, that succeeded two days apart in October 2014, but we haven't had the big Manchester or, or that. And that's to say we couldn't. It's absolutely possible. But I, I, don't, I think Canadians should, should take it to heart that this is not a daily event in this country. It's not even a yearly event in this country. Hmm. And while it's possible, it's not probable. And I, for one, am not changing my routine just because there's a, a small percentage possibility of a terrorist attack. I'm going to enjoy Canada 150 and hope the rest of the country does too. Well said. Uh, advice uh, to the individual, advice to the individual traveler, whether they're heading to Europe or to Ottawa, wherever they're going, what can we do as individuals? Well, I think first and foremost, you, you, you place your faith in the, the authorities because they're doing a good job and they're, and they're working 24-7, 365 to keep us safe, and they're going to get most bad guys. I mean, you know, it, it, it just in terms of sort of, you know, be aware of where you are. You know, if you're going to go to a, a place with, with a lot of people, whether it be a nightclub or a concert or whatever, you know, have a look at where the exits are. You know, we've all been on airplanes, right? And what do we do when they announce the security procedures? Hmm. We, we all look away and read our magazine. <laughs> exactly. and, and, you know, no one looks. I mean, they say, look where the emergency exits are. In the, you know, the one of the gazillion chances you're going to be in an emergency, you want to know. That's the same thing for, for life in general. Just be you know, generally aware of where you are. Don't panic. Don't obsess about it. Because if you obsess about it, you're basically giving them the terrorists the kind of victory that they're looking for. They want to change our habits, right? But just, it's just it's common sense awareness. You know, I, I probably wouldn't travel to downtown Mogadishu for a weekend if I were you, hmm. but I'm, I'm sure it's all going to travel to downtown Ottawa for Canada 150, and, and you know, aside from general awareness, enjoy yourself.
Uh, with uh, Ottawa obviously being the nation's capital, when things like this happen in the world, do you see changes in Ottawa? Um, not necessarily. I think what happens is that obviously we'll look at lessons learned. So, you know, the UK will look at, okay, what did we know? What did we do with it? What did we not know? Why didn't we know it? How can we know it next time? And, you know, we're part of an amazing partnership. You've probably heard of the Five Eyes Arrangement mm-hmm. with the Anglo part, Intelligence Partners. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a unique club in the world. Trust me, I worked in it for 30 years, and we're really privileged to be part of it. So we will look at what happened, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at lessons that are learned. But to me, it's just more of the same, maybe more of the same on steroids. Given Canada 150, I'd be very surprised if Caesar Snares DC were not ramping up a little bit more for this particular event. But it's so it's, it's basically what you're doing normally, just a, just to a, to a to a greater extent, I would say. I, w- I wouldn't think I wouldn't see wholesale changes in what they do or how they do it. Just uh, same as usual. Last question: Prime Minister Theresa May said there's too much tolerance of extremism in the country. How do you separate sympathizers from oh. those that will actually commit acts? Yes, Scott. If I had the answer to that question, I hmm. wouldn't be on the phone. I'd be on a yacht in the Mediterranean because I'd be a bazillionaire. Hmm. Uh, it, it's tough. In my experience, and I've said this publicly, the vast majority of people that talk the talk don't walk the walk. They're wannabes. Uh, you just have to look at them still because they're spouting this rhetoric, but most people are either cowards or incapable. And and so that's the first thing. The second thing is, where do you draw that line? I think there are some things that are obviously hateful and extremist and should be censured and should be stopped, but there's a gray area, right? And, and you know, we have a, we have a charter in this country, and, and, there, and we, we should respect freedom of speech and people that disagree with us. But to me, you know, expressing support for terrorist groups, saying that democracy should be overthrown, that to me crosses the line and, and should be looked into. But there's, a, there's an area that, you know, what if people just go get up to that line before it becomes extremist in nature? And, you know, extremism is okay as long as it doesn't advocate violence. There's nothing wrong with being extreme or radical. It's when you advocate violence. So I think there's some obvious things that should be done. And the UK has been rather tolerant of, I would think, is what I would label violent extremist speech for far too long. So they are on the side of freedom of speech. We've got to stop doing that. But then when you do that, then you entertain, well, you're, you're, you're the thought police. Well, you're trying to stop people from disagreeing. No, I'm not. I'm trying to stop people from spreading hate in, in violent language. But it, it's tough. I don't have an answer to that. It, it, it's something we need to all talk about. Where is that line? And what are we, what are we, what are we going to do about it? it? And I don't have an easy answer. I don't think anybody does at this point. Uh, will we still be talking about this 10 years from now? Will we, have sto- will we have stopped this? I mean, you know, stop the Nazis in World War II. Can we stop this? You know, um, I'm, I'm, an op- I'm a realist and optimist at heart. And um, I, I, I'll, be, I'll be completely honest with you. I think the answer is no. Um, I, I've been retired now from two years after working 30 years in intelligence, and I've been doing a lot of media since that time. You and I will be having this conversation five years from now. If you're still on the radio station, that is. Uh, I wish I could say we wouldn't, but we, we will be. It's, terrorism is, it, 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 it's, it's here to stay. We're making great strides at trying to identify it and prevent it. And, you know, we, we're going to have this, this office in Canada at counter-radicalization, which I'm consciously optimistic about. But I, I think this is, unfortunately, the new normal, is that we're going to have attacks that take place. And I'll be on your show again. And I, I hope it's to talk about the Senators being the least in the playoffs. But it shouldn't be about terrorism. I'm sorry to say. Why will this not unite the rest of the world to to you know to snuff out this common this common tragedy this common cause? Well, I, I think it is uniting the world in the sense that people are definitely in agreement. We have to do what we can to stop it. But the problem is, um, what measures are we going to take? So you know, south of the border, we have a president who wants a ban on immigration. That's his response. It's it's probably not going to work. But anyway, people support that. We're very different here in Canada. 
So because you can't agree on the solution, um, you can't work completely hand in glove all around the world because different people have different ideas of what, what causes this and what we should do about it. So while there is a general, I would, I would argue, universal will to do something, we can't agree on what that thing is to be done. So we're going to have differences of opinion and we're going to be working at, at counter purposes in, 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 in some ways in some countries. So this is why it won't be resolved anytime soon. We're going to get better. We're, we're going to get better at because we're going to learn from what we've done and learn what we need to change. But unfortunately, as I said, um, I'm, I'll be doing interviews on this for, for the foreseeable future. I'll, I will never formally retire because this is something that's going to keep happening. I, I wish I could say otherwise, but i got to be honest with you, it's not. So you don't think uh, what has happened in London or what the Prime Minister said is a tipping point in any way? No. And I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not being facetious. Mm-hmm. I, I, I understand what she's saying, and I, and I support her. And yes, I mean, I think that we will, you know, people maybe who are sitting on the fence might say, hey, yeah, you know, enough's enough, as she said. Let's get together and do something about this. But, I mean, if you go back in time, um, weren't the same thing said in 2005 in London? Uh, weren't the same thing said in Madrid in 2004? Weren't the same thing said, you know, I can go on and on and on right. and on, right? We have these, these officials who are well-intentioned and they make these statements. This, you know, this has got to stop. This, this is the turning point. I've seen too many turning points, God, in my life to put any faith in this one. And, I'm not, again, I'm not being dismissive of what she said. I completely support what she, what she stated. But I don't see why this will be any different. Thankfully, again, terrorism is a very rare occurrence writ large if you look at any particular country. Yes, we've had a spate of three in the past eight weeks in the, in the United Kingdom, but we can't panic and lose our heads over this. We have to be calm and collected and objective. And that way, if we, if we, if we, if we take that kind of stand, we will come up with solutions that work as opposed to panicking and you know banning immigration or closing mosques or whatever the people are proposing. That's not going to help. So let's sit back. Have a coffee, have a beer if you need, or a scotch, like I will probably do tonight. Think about this stuff, and then and, uh, you know attack it with with, uh, with calmer heads. Phil Gursky has been with us, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, talking about uh, what has been happening in the world, and of course preparations for Canada's 150. Phil, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. A grassroots group is planning to launch a legal action against the separate school funding pro, uh, protocols in our province. They want to bring the issue to the forefront as school closures cause anger in many regions. Uh, one public education now says that a taxpayer-funded Catholic schools are no longer fair or affordable in a society of many religions and cultures. To talk more about all of this is Annie Kidder, and we should mention we've been trying to get a hold of someone from uh, one public education now, uh, but I've been unable to to this point. Andy Kidder is with us, Executive Director, People for Education, and is with us now. Hello, Annie. How are you today? I am very well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us, Annie. Uh, we've all heard of the repair backlogs and, and school closures and such. Is it fair to blame a multi-board system on this? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that we have to we have to be very careful when we do this when we're we're trying to figure out what we can do to ensure we have enough resources uh, for our schools that we're uh, not closing schools unnecessarily uh, that and we have all the you know all the funding that schools need to operate and I don't think um, I, I, I think you know I'm very old and have lived through a lot of amalgamations that they didn't actually save money. So that when we're thinking about ways to operate more efficiently, there are ways of doing that. There's, you know, sharing kind of the um, uh, the, the sort of some of the 
the work that's done, I can't think of the right word for it, sort of, you know, work that's done in in offices. Right. In, um, I wish I could think of the right word anyway. Duplication. So people, yeah. But so, like, you know, people have eight people who run HR, right. who run various components. So getting the, rid of the duplication within you know, each yeah, board. You can yeah. get rid of some of the duplication in the back offices, and that does help save some money. But just saying let's amalgamate school boards isn't a thing that saves money. Is it a matter of time before we have to address this? Is this problem going away? Well, in the money problem? Uh, the problem with one system. Well, or I don't two think, systems I mean, or three I or four. I don't think you, you know, even, you know, deciding it's a problem or not a problem is a, you know, different conversation. I think that, you know, we do, we live in a province where people have a right to go to school in the French language, they have a right to go to Catholic schools, and they have the right to go to... Um, non-Catholic schools, and, and it's in the Constitution that way. So it's, it, is, it is, has been set up this way for a long, long time. It's not, I think that the, it is a problem to think that somehow doing away with, say, all our French language schools, which would be the, for the same reason as, you know, thinking we could do away with Catholic schools, um, to save money isn't something that actually would work or may, would make that much of a difference. Andy, why do we have this discussion about uh, religious schools, but we don't have this discussion about language? Well, I don't know. So in other words, why yeah. is there? Why is it good to have, uh, you know, even in this, uh, in this group's uh, release, it says, we believe there should be one denominational two-language public school system. Well, why not just be one and one? <laughs> well, how come you're separating religion, but you're not separating language? Yeah, well, and I think that, it, you know, it's important to remember that, or think about, about that, too, that we have to understand this is what we have now. And, and, and we don't have a position on, the, on those divisions but we understand historically why they're there, uh, that Ontario is a, you know, that people in Ontario have a right um, and again, it's a right. It's a constitutional right. It's written in uh, to be able to, and it was done initially to protect minority uh, languages and religions, uh, to be able to go to school in French. And there are communities in, you know, some parts of Ontario where they would also argue vehemently that it's not fair that, you know, French language schools get built and um, are funded when sometimes the English language schools aren't. Um, but it is it is the way that it works here, and that's why it's more important, rather than sort of pitting groups against each other, that we actually figure out how to be more efficient with the services that are provided, how to share buildings, how to share the sort of back-end kind of services. But once you get to the point, Andy, of sharing all of this stuff, at what point does it just make more sense to do it all in one? I mean, you know, and we've, you, you talked about closing English schools to open French schools and such. We've heard evidence anecdotally that, you know, uh, if, if, if boards are getting more money to uh, bring in French immersion, then that's what they're going to do because it's all about money at the end of the day. Um, but at the end, aren't we just trying to be too much to too many people? Well, I think, that, but it, that is why, you know, so, I mean, I'm going to take it even further in a, the kind of, you know, to sort of go to the extreme in this. We also educate kids no matter how high their special needs are. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we don't because of who we are, I hope. But special needs, of course, mm. there's no choice involved there well, in the but sense that, but, that there is here. I mean, you but know. I'm not sure that you could, I mean, if you said. Helping somebody, our most vulnerable is one thing. Yeah. Uh, being everything to everyone, that's another. But, but 
I think that if I'm a Franco-Ontarian, for instance, and I go, I want to preserve my culture and I want to be able to send my kids to school in my own language, I think that you 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 could. I mean, I know I know it's taking it too far, the the extreme, but I think that that's how we have to think about it. We have to think about that. Yes, we actually, you know, we want to educate all kinds of people in our schools. They're all part of one public education system. Um, we do have to figure out a way of sharing more effectively. Um, but it's not; it doesn't cost more necessarily to do it the way it's done now. Um, I guess my point is, is though, how is this problem going to get anything but more complicated? I mean, there's more than the Catholic religion in Canadian society. There's certainly more than the French language, as far as languages yeah. in this country. So again, you know, what about the the person that demands their kid, you know, be educated in this language or that language? Or, the, or I mean, where do you draw the line here? Well, I think, that, but I and so and, I and again, coming yeah. as opposed to coming back to one system where you can you you can take any religious class in this, mm-hmm. you can take any language in class in this, and and then at least you know you might get people from both sides of the fence in the same classroom acknowledging and respecting each other. No, and I think that I think you're right that it's really important that uh, when we're you know that 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 we have that in our education system that we're I mean look at the world right now it's a mess in so many ways uh, that we are we are ensuring that all kids are getting you know lots of education in lots of religions in culture and that's why one of the things we've been working on is ensuring that kids are getting really good. Uh, citizenship education that has to do with understanding diversity, getting along with each other, you know, being able to disagree with people, um, understanding, you know, the sort of different relationships we have. So I think that we, you know, that we do have to focus on in our schools for sure. Where do you see this going, Annie? Um, I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see as we, you know, and you're right. I mean, uh, Ontario is incredibly diverse. There are parts of you know, urban parts of Ontario um, are, you know, the are the majority of of students anyway are, you know, maybe first or second generation in Canada. So, being able to have the system evolve so that it includes all of the difference uh, in it is is somewhere where it's going to go. It's not going to suddenly change. Um, but that I'm sure that it will change over time in that way to be able to to, to ensure that it is inclusive. Uh, is this less of a problem than, say, French immersion is? In other words, the Catholic, you know, whether it's a Catholic versus the public system, is this less of an expense, less of an issue than the cost and issues surrounding people trying to put their kids into French immersion. I mean, again, I, I got parents in my neighborhood, and they're basically saying, my kid's going to French immersion because it's the only way they'll get a government job. And I'm thinking, my goodness, how the tides have changed over the years. <laughs> no, it's true. But, well, I think that, you know, again, it's like, do we look at these all as, as terrible problems, or do we go, how do we make sure, A, that the system is able to do what it's supposed to do, which is to give everybody an equitable chance? So how do we make sure, then, that we're not dividing kids um, based on their kind of socioeconomic status, which sometimes happens with all different kinds of specialty schools? So we do have to keep looking at that. We do have to try to make sure that, um, you know, that... 
that we're bringing people together, that the, the kind of idea of social cohesion is something that we're sort of building into our schools. But it's all, it all takes time. Is there as much discussion about combining French and English boards as there is Catholic and public? No, there isn't so far because of, because of its language. So, you know, I so what's that, the difference, Annie? Well, one is language and one is religion. Is that too simplistic? I mean, it's, um, <laughs> why, why does it matter? Um, well, I guess my point is, is lots of languages, lots of religions. Mm-hmm. Well, it's part, again, you know, and I know this is slightly avoiding the issue. It goes back to the, the beginnings of Canada. This particular thing goes directly back to the beginnings of Canada mm-hmm. and the joining of Upper and Lower Canada. Yeah. And at that point, uh, Catholicism was a minority religion that that wanted to be respected within the joining, and um, there was an assurance that uh, spe- you know people who spoke French would also be protected. So in in Ontario specifically, both those things were protected. And I think that um, I think it's it's part of still who we are uh, in Ontario. Is French protected more than English is in this province? No. No. I mean, I can't, how is English protected? I mean, how, I, I mean, French has to be protected because it's a minority language. Mm-hmm. So in exactly the same way, in Quebec, um, there are minority language in English schools which are protected, get some federal funding for exactly the same reason, because they're minority language schools. Do you think that uh, there's any grounds with this case and this group moving forward? I don't know. I actually, I'm so sorry. I didn't even know that's what this interview is going to be about. So I don't know anything about the case. Uh, it's certainly an argument that has come up several times over the past several years. Do you see it going away? Um, no, I'm sure. I mean, but there are so many different, you know, arguments and complexities in the education system. So I'm sure this won't go away, along with all of the other, you know, things that that we argue about it. Do you think, do you see us simplifying this or making it more complicated? And by that I mean, you know, like there's basically four boards now, right? There's four, there's Mm -hmm. French and English public, there's French and English Catholic. Do you see there being six, eight, ten, as opposed to one with the option of all of these? I don't know. I, I actually don't know the answer to that question. I, and I, and I do think, I know this is boring, but I actually think that the thing that's going to evolve is the mechanics, and that by evolving the kind of sharing of costs, slowly the other evolution will happen, but that that's where it has to begin, as opposed to having a huge controversial fight about systems um, that slowly will go already, you know, board share school buses. So we'll move Mm -hmm. from school buses to accountants to uh, gyms to, and I think that it'll happen that way. Um, has the role of has, has the role of the French immersion school changed in the last decade? Um, initially, I'm thinking French immersion was designed with those with the language to uh, withhold it and, and, and keep it in society, as opposed to, as I just mentioned, kids who have no French background at all uh, jumping on board because they think it will be it'll lead to better employment opportunities within the government in the future. So, and we're talking about two different things here. I mean, French immersion happens in is in English language schools, and I'm talking about the French language system. Mm-hmm. Nobody has a right to go to French immersion school. So, I mean, the thing you know where French immersion in the English language system is interesting and sometimes problematic. Again, is that there still is a tendency to there 
there still appear to be socioeconomics still appears to be a factor in terms of who's putting their kids in French immersion. Mm. Um, so it becomes a little kind of mini version of a kind of streaming. That's what I've heard. I've, yep. I've, I've no, heard, no, no. I've heard it's like, it's the, it's the public private system. If you oh. can, if you can make enough noise and get it in your neighborhood, it's like, it's like public, uh, a public school system designed for private use. It, well, I mean, I'm not sure that it's, it's a, it's, that extreme, but I do know for sure that, and it's one of the reasons... But clearly parents think there's an advantage to this over the other schools offered in the system. Well, it, and it's a little bit um, that it's that it's partly is that, that it's partly a way, it's, it is partly a form of streaming, and it definitely is more likely to be chosen by parents who come from um, who have higher than average family incomes, who are more likely to be university educated. So yes, it ends up dividing kids along those lines. Uh, do you see that continuing to be an ongoing problem? It seems to be this is a new thread for this system. Yep, this I, is a I, new I, angle. This seems is. to be it, generating a lot of interest. Yep, and I think that it's one that we're going to, but it's the same. I mean, you know, studies have come out in the last while about uh, specialty schools in the same way. So you could have a specialty school that's a French immersion school and, or, or an arts school or a math school. And it's when we start dividing up the system in that way that it's it, it becomes problematic in terms of, uh, that it divides the it divides the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I'm a fan of one and bringing all into it. D- does that ever enter the discussion uh, as, in some of the reasoning behind this? Like, isn't it just better to have the kids together in the same environment that they would live in the real world as opposed to be in silos? Well, yes. And I, you know, that that's definitely part of the the hope and the and the purpose of public education. Is that you know, if we, you create silos in school, then why are we not creating them? They'll be created in in real life, will they not? Yeah, and I think that that's something that you know, definitely, when we look at the world right now, we want to make sure that we're we're doing that as little as possible. So yes, I agree that it's something that we need to keep working on. Annie Kidder has been with us, Executive Director, People for Education. Annie, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Take care, Annie. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.